Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining today's conference call. I'm Jim Doyle, President of Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. We're pleased to welcome Lisa Elman, Co-Executive Director of the Commercial Drone Alliance and Chair of the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Group at Hogan Levels. She's joined by Pat Rizzi, uh, also at Hogan Levels and a key member of their aviation practice. Uh, Lisa and Pat are here to talk about new FAA rules that allow the commercial use of drones under certain circumstances and its effect on American businesses and the economy. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across America. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their business and how Washington can work with business to accelerate our economy. Today, more than 550 senior administration officials, members of Congress, governors, and mayors have participated in our programming. We have a presence in 125 different cities, and this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's large markets, largest and most respected companies. To participate in our events, you don't have to join Business Forward or pay to participate. Just show up and speak your mind, and you can have an impact. Before we get started, I need to cover a few housekeeping items. First, this call is on the record, and reporters may be listening. We will be sending a recording of this call follow, uh, to you following uh, today's discussion, and we'll also include any resources that are mentioned. Uh, also, there will be time for you to ask questions and share your advice. You can do this in one of two ways. You can press 1 on your dial pad at any time during this call to, ask, to be put into queue to ask your question live, or you can email your question at info at businessfwd.org. When we call you on, uh, on to ask a live question, please introduce yourself uh, with your business name and where you're calling from. Uh, again, you just press 1 at any time on your dial pad during the course of the call, and you'll be put in queue. And uh, if it's easier, just email the question to us at info at businessfwd.org, and we'll add to the queue. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, please welcome Lisa and Pat. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much, Jim, and thank you, everyone. Uh, for the opportunity to be with you today. Pat and I are very, very excited to talk to you. Of course, this is my favorite topic, drone fever. I could talk for hours and hours and hours. I will keep it short because I, I know that we'll, we'll um, would love to have plenty of time for questions and answers and happy to answer any questions you might have. Um, this, this call is really perfectly timed since we're at such a critical time for innovation and technology. And just to give you a little bit more background on me and where I come from, I'm a former policymaker on drone issues in particular. Um, I previously worked to promote emerging technologies at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, uh, as well and at the Office of Management and Budget. And then I also most recently worked at the Department of Justice where I ran drone policy development at DOJ. Uh, I'm now in the private sector and work on this side um, where I lead the global UAS group at Hogan Levels as well as lead the Commercial Drone Alliance, which is a coalition of companies who are interested in moving the commercial drone industry forward. So now is a very exciting time for innovation. Um, as we all know, because we're joining here today, drone technology has really taken off. And what used to be considered toys are now really tools for industry and for public agencies. And um, they make tasks that, you know, from everything from news gathering to farming to infrastructure inspection and everything in between. Um, they make these tasks safer and more efficient and enhance our business productivity. 
The economic benefits that the drone market will provide are significant. There have been a ton of different estimates out there, but all of the estimates are large. A recent PricewaterhouseCoopers report in particular estimated that the global market value of drone-powered solutions is over $127 billion. And the FAA actually just recently estimated that by 2020, just four years from now, 11 million commercial drones will have been sold here in the United States alone, which is a staggering number considering that up until about a month ago, the use of commercial drones in the United States was not even yet legal. So we can see how fast this industry is really going to be taking off. But really to get there and to be able to take advantage of all of the many benefits of drones, we need the policies in place. And um, that's something that, of course, I've been in conversations with Business Forward with as well, which is great. Um, but the commercial drone industry and the Commercial Drone Alliance, what we stand for, um, and what co small businesses, large businesses, um, companies everywhere, everywhere want, is they want the innovation to succeed and to move forward, but of course in a way that is safe and respective of privacy and security. Um, let me just kind of take a step back because uh, we always get a lot of questions kind of about, well, haven't drones been flying here for many years? And that is definitely the case. Hobbyists and model aircraft, we've been able to fly for decades. And t toys, um, we've been broadly authorized to go fly in our local parks. However, if you were a company or if you were an individual flying on behalf of any commercial entity, we have not yet been broadly authorized to do so until August 29th of this year. Um, as of this past summer, you still had to go through a lengthy um, approval process from in order to get a special FAA license to be able to fly commercially. But um, that has now changed. We've reached a huge milestone and that is a great thing for the industry. And effective August 29th, as I mentioned just a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, the FAA officially authorized commercial drone flights here in the United States. Uh, the market has now opened. It's expected to grow exponentially. And funding dollar, dollars are really starting to flood into the industry. Under this new Part 107, Companies can fly freely in compliance with the rules restrictions. And here are just some of the basic restrictions. You can fly up to 400 feet with a vehicle up to 55 pounds. Um, you can, and, and I say generally up to 400 feet, there are situations where you can fly higher than that. With a uh, vehicle up to 55 pounds during daytime hours or civil twilight within visual line of sight, uh, not, over, not directly over people that are not participating in the operation or, or sheltered. Um, and uh, uh, that's kind of the in, within visual line of sight, I think I said that. Um, the pilot's license is a key aspect to this. Previously, if you're a company looking to fly drones commercially for your company, you had to have a pilot that had a manned aviation pilot's license. And that was part of this whole regulatory framework has somewhat imperfectly been grafted onto the manned aviation regulatory structure, and it was a remnant of that. You had to have a manned aviation pilot's license. And um, now, under this new rule, you can go get your remote pilot certificate, or your pilots can go get certificated for a small fee. Um, you just have to be 16 years old, be able to read and understand English, pass an aeronautical knowledge exam, and pass a TSA security background check. So it's somewhat, um, it's just a whole lot uh, easier now um, and less burdensome to get yourself certificated in order to be able to fly a drone, which has been a really big, big um, point for the industry. And in just the first few weeks since Part 107 went into effect, 
More than 7,000 remote pilot certificate exams have been taken with a pass rate of 88%. So a lot of folks that are passing are, or a lot of folks taking the test are passing. There are study guides available online. If there's interest in those study guides, I'm happy to follow up through the Business Forward folks and send those along um, if you're thinking about getting your certificate. Package delivery. Um, we always get asked about the, whether package delivery is allowed under the new rule. And the answer is yes, but uh, in limited circumstances, including with it keeping the drone within visual line of sight. Uh, the rule does bake in fl some flexibility, and it provides a waiver process. Uh, this was a, a different, uh, the rule kind of evolved and in its first form. It just, it was a blanket prohibition on beyond visual line of sight flights or flights over people. Now you can actually ask for a waiver from Part 107. Um, and the ability to be able to fly over people or at night or beyond visual line of sight um, or other certain waivable provisions. And the key to this process is making the safety case that you can fly with an equivalent level of safety to operations that are conducted under Part 107. Now there's a lot of question about this process, how in-depth of a process is this, and essentially that depends on what you want to do. Um, if you want to fly at night, it's a less complicated process than asking to fly over people. Um, if you want to fly beyond visual line of sight, it might be more, more in-depth than, than other things as well. So it just essentially depends on what you want to do and what you want your capabilities to be. Uh, we actually, our Hogan Lovells team just assisted CNN to get the first ever waiver under Part 107 to fly over people. Now, they're the, the only company ever approved to be able to fly over people here in the United States, which was very exciting and it was, um, it was quite a process that did involve uh, data collection and testing. Um, there are a few points on the waiver process where folks are looking for you know, the process to be streamlined. Um, on the industry side, it's very important that the process moves forward quickly as well as provides, substanti provides substantively kind of some real-world operations and that's something that the industry groups are, are really pushing the FAA on since some of the conditions and limitations outlined in some of the first waivers that have been uh, approved have been relatively strict. Um, so far, overall, more than 550 waiver applications requesting the ability to fly outside the scope of the rule have been filed. Um, it could be more now that that, that number was uh, updated as of a, a few weeks ago, and 79 of them have been approved. So all of this is very welcome progress, and it's finally opened the benefits of drones to businesses across the country, and this was a huge step for the industry. There's been a lot of attention. Uh, there was recently, just a few weeks ago, I actually testified to Congress uh, to the House Small Business Committee who is very interested in uh, learning about the Part 107 and what the regulatory barriers continue to be for companies on behalf of small businesses. So that was a really interesting hearing and lots of uh, great points were made. Um, uh, there was also a lot of talk about what's next with the FAA. And so, um, First, just on next steps with rulemakings. The FAA has committed to releasing a proposed rule on drone operations over people by the end of the year. So of course, you know, news gatherers, you gather news where people are. If you're in real estate, you recognize that many times you're flying in suburban and urban areas where people are. A lot of the benefits of drones, you have to be able to fly directly over people. I will note that in, in some countries, this is actually not the case. I just was in Switzerland last week, for example, and in Switzerland you don't need to get any permission to fly over people, over individuals. You only have to get permission to fly over crowds of people, like more than 24 people at a time was the number that they gave me. Um, but so th the point is that a lot of comp or countries are actually approaching these issues 
differently. And frankly, a lot of other countries have had more amenable regulatory frameworks than the U.S., although we're catching up. Um, there, was, there will also be an expanded operations rule, essentially a rule that allows flights under the conditions that are currently waivable, which I mentioned, such as night flights, beyond visual line of sight flights, uh, and more. So we're, we're definitely on the lookout for that proposed rule as well. Um, but I would also mention that while the, and I'm happy to, to answer any questions, Pat and I are both happy to answer any questions on FAA and what the FAA is doing and thinking about and the safety uh, issues surrounding drone flight. Um, but I will also mention that while the federal government has really been most focused on safety issues, the American public has been most focused on privacy issues. And we're seeing the results of this uh, both at the federal and state levels. Um, in the same day that the proposed rule was issued, the proposed small rule, um, which is now final, was issued back in February of last year, uh, the White House released a presidential memorandum that mandated that, that industry come together with stakeholders and craft some voluntary best practices around transparency and privacy and accountability for the industry. That uh, process was actually very successful, and um, we all came to consensus around a set of best practices in May of this year. And uh, that was uh, run through NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information um, Administration at the Department of Commerce. It was a very successful, uh, it was a very successful process. I would also mention, though, that this Thursday, another government agency, the Federal Trade Commission, is hosting a workshop on drone privacy. And this has um, provoked some controversy, um, but they are planning to talk about um, whether drones can be hacked and then some privacy issues around those issues. And I think that the commercial industry is most focused on making sure that the NTIA best practices kind of remain the standard around which the industry has already has a set of best practices around privacy and has focused and <clears throat> participated in, in processes to, to craft these best practices as part of a collaborative process. Um, so there is some worry out there that, that the FTC will try to duplicate efforts and draft additional reports or best practices. We'll have to see how that all turns out. Um, the agency is taking comments from stakeholders right now. Um, but finally, I would also note that if you are looking to fly, of course, it's important to follow the state and local action on the topic. We're seeing a bunch of proposed legislation and ordinances pop up in towns and communities and cities and states across the United States, um, and some of them have passed. Uh, and so in addition to the new FAA rule, you might want to keep track of what the rules and the laws are uh, where you're operating as well. Um, the final thing I'll note is that while companies, companies love drones, they're also worried about drones. Um, they're worried about unauthorized drones flying over their property, and there's a lot of work that's being done around here. Uh, we get asked the question all the time, can we shoot a drone down? Can we, you know, what do we do if a, ro if a rogue or unauthorized drone flies over our property? And um, I would, you know, no, you shouldn't shoot it down. There's actually a lot of rules and laws around um, what you can do and what you can't do. There are various counter UAV technologies that are being developed now uh, around uh, security. And um, many of those technologies, however, uh, it's unclear at this point which of them are legal to use. And that's another policy process that's been happening in the federal government. You know, it's clear that we can detect, identify, and track drones flying over our property. But then the question is, what can you do from there? Um, and that is somewhat of an open question right now on the policy and legal side. So with that, uh, you know, just uh, I tried to keep it short because I'd love to, to get time for questions and make sure that we have time to answer all the questions you might have. 
Uh, thank you very much, Lisa. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, our first call is from Michael Jones. Uh, Michael, you're on the line. Wow. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is the first time I've gotten the first one. I just want to applaud Business Board for all of these opportunities for our small businesses to get in on these things. And, ma'am, I tell you, I, I, call, I got in a little late. Um, we're, we're, we're in the drone business um, in, in multiple ways. Um, mm -hmm. One is for uh, hospitals um, because um, in, in, um, in catastrophic situations, let's just say a, a shooter incident or a terrorism incident, a lot of times you know, their, um, their emergency response situation, triage, is blind until the ambulances start rolling in. And so mm -hmm. we're working with hospitals to uh, have, have a um, connected 70-inch, um, uh, it's, it's really a 70-inch table uh, screen. It's, a, it's literally in the computers are inside the cabinet. And they can launch immediately upon notification. They launch their drone from the, you know, most hospitals are pretty high up, you know, and mm -hmm. they can launch them. And they can then get first-hand review. Okay, this is a 12-car pileup. We've got four ambulances on the scene. Okay, three of them are coming to us. And, um, you know, things like that. Is there going to be, um, and I have a two-part question. I'm sorry because I'm so excited to hear you. You're, you're, you're awesome. Um, is there going to be something that deals with, like, um, emergency response use of of um, uh, of this type of technology because it's just you know it's just rapidly I mean it's just it, you know we our first drone was twelve hundred I think we sold our last one that was as good as it if not better and half the size for like four hundred and is there is there something on that um, the second question is and I may have missed this on the first and I apologize if I did um, is the FAA the final authority on drone use? Yeah. So, well, that's those a two-part question. Yeah, those are great questions, Michael, and thank you so much for your remarks. Um, it sounds like you're doing really interesting and intriguing work. I'd love to learn more about it personally. Um, so a few things on disaster response, and I'll also let Pat chime in here. We've actually been working with quite a few clients on um, who, are, who are looking to use drones for disaster response. There's a number of things to be aware of, of course, in disaster response situations. It's somewhat, you know, you obviously want to be coordinating with state and local law enforcement um, and make sure that you're not, you know, getting in the way of anyone. It sounds like you're working coordinating with hospitals. Um, it's possible uh, you could work, partner with a public agency and, and um, they can easily get kind of emergency ability to fly. The biggest situation I see with you with near hospitals, maybe like airspace authorizations and of course the ability to fly over people. Um, there are a number of abilities that you would, or capabilities that you would likely need to have in order um, to be able to fly in a way that, um, you know, mitigates your liabilities as well as keeps you on the right side of Part 107 with the FAA. Um, and so, you know, again, I'd be happy to talk with you about that offline. Uh, we have been doing some work with hospitals. Pat, anything else to add? Well, I would just add, unfortunately, the current Part 107 that Lisa summarized at the beginning of the call doesn't necessarily work best for the emergency type situations you're talking about insofar as it may be that the uh, the accident or catastrophic event is beyond visual line of sight. 
it may be it's in an urban area or in a class B, C, D, or E airspace, which you cannot operate in without um, FAA or ATC approval. So unfortunately, we have a lot of layers that, that do not uh, lend themselves to quick and fast responses. Um, we're hopeful that when the FAA puts out its expanded rule, if you will, that Lisa alluded to, that's going to take a shot at laying out some principles whereby you can operate under certain of these waived provisions, like you can get a waiver from, beyond, uh, from visual line of sight requirement, you can get a waiver to operate in controlled airspace, things like that, that when that rule comes out, we're hoping there will be an opportunity to mold those rules before it goes final so that it is more accommodating of um, the type of operations I think you're in, envisioning. And so you don't have to sort of deal with this patchwork of different requirements and how they might affect you because what you really want to do is just get to the incident um, because that's what you, where you will get the best information and that's actually the objective and it's a strong public safety um, argument in support of that. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Pat. And then your, yeah, and so and your, thank you, Pat. And then your second question was about, is FAA the final authority? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> the FAA would like to think of itself as the final authority on all things related to drones, although they, they actually, um, so they have jurisdiction over the safety and operations of our, of our national airspace, right? So anything that involves safety issues um, falls in the FAA's jurisdiction. They recently, uh, released a, a guidance document from their chief counsel's office on preemption issues. So all these states and localities that are um, passing these new laws and ordinances that would regulate or limit drone use in some way in towns and communities and states across the country, um, you know, the question is, are those legal? Are they subject to preemption challenges? And the complicated thing here is that states traditionally regulate property rights and privacy rights. So essentially all a state or locality has to do is craft its regulations in terms of property rights or privacy rights. And um, as a practical matter, it would likely fly with the FAA, but it would be a close call if it was simply a safety regulation masked as a privacy regulation. Um, and so simply that, that is an open question depending on, there's a lot of gray area there in terms of the preemption issues but um, you know, one of the challenges that FAA has, frankly, is that they're not able to enforce the law across the country simply because they don't have the resources to do so. So in a lot of ways, while they are the, they, the, you know, they are the kind of final arbiter of a lot of these, or would maintain themselves to be the final arbiter of a lot of these issues, um, there have been questions about whether they should be, but that's a separate question. Um, they have also, I uh, reached out to state and local law enforcement for guidance on what they should do in terms of if somebody, uh, uh, with, if, with guidance, if, if somebody is flying in a way that's recklessly endangering the public, what steps does a local or state law enforcement official take um, to enforce the FAA regulations? It's a somewhat controversial thing. A lot of states and localities don't believe they should be enforcing FAA administrative rules, but um, in a lot of ways, a lot of if you violate Part 107, um, you know there's, there likely would be some kind of argument that you're also endangering the public in some way, and so it could also be some kind of state tort or or other um, legal violation. So, 
So somewhat unclear answer to your question there. But. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, again, if you have a question, please press 1 on your dial pad to speak live on the call, or you can email your question to info at businessfwd.org. Uh, we have an email question from Rob Honeycutt, uh, representing Timbuktu in San Francisco. Uh, quote, I hear all the talk about FAA regulations of drone pilots. What about regulations related to the drones themselves and airworthiness? Uh, that's a great question. And essentially the short answer, and I'll let Pat go more, because Pat's an aviation lawyer, go more into the airworthiness issue, but I would just say that Part 107 essentially has no airworthiness standards. Um, there are no requirements of vehicles. The idea, though, is that Part 107 was authorizing very low-risk flights, which is why they have essentially said, you know, you can't move beyond, you can't go beyond the visual line of sight, you can't fly directly over people. So the FAA is worried that a drone is going to fly away or fall out of the sky at any time. Um, is, if it does that, they don't care as long as, um, you know, they don't care if a drone falls out of the sky as long as it's not falling on someone's head, and they don't care if it flies away as long as there's some way for it to return to home and you, you, the operator is able to see it fly away and get it to come, come back um, so that there's no interference with air traffic control. Um, but that, that said, there is no airworthiness standards now, but there may be in the future, and that's some of what they're looking to incorporate in, with future versions of these rules. Pat, anything else to add? Yeah, no, you're, that's absolutely right. I would, I would underscore that one of the key reasons they have provisions in Part 107, like you can't fly right over people, is because of this concern about the potential that the uh, unmanned aircraft would fall out of the sky and hit somebody, whereas Manned aircraft, like you're, you're flying, if you're in San Francisco, you know, flying on a commercial airliner or even a general aviation aircraft, those have been certificated and have gone through airworthiness standards and certification processes. So the FAA has some basis to say, well, look, this thing's been looked at. It's run the traps. This manned aircraft is not supposed to and probably won't fall right out of the sky so you can fly over people. That has not been done in the unmanned aircraft um, arena at large. There have been efforts to certificate and get an airworthiness or a special airworthiness certificate for certain of the larger types of unmanned aircraft. But for most people operating under Part 107, the traps to jump through, the length of the process, the resources it would take to get some sort of airworthiness credential for an unmanned aircraft are greater um, than the benefit would be of having that airworthiness uh, stamp of approval, if you will. So both in the rule and for most people, uh, it's just not quite frankly worth it. And in the rule, it's not necessary to have an airworthiness um, certificate uh, attached to your unmanned aircraft. That's a really good point, Pat. And I would also just add that um, Obviously, because the unmanned aircraft world moves so quickly, and drone manufacturers are coming up with new versions of its vehicles every few months, right? And right now, the certification process in the manned aviation world would you'd take a few years to get certification. So, so it explains kind of why, as Pat described, it just doesn't make sense for most drone companies to go through that process. There really should be a different process. That's something that they're thinking about and considering, um, but, but there's nothing yet. Great, thank you. Our next call is from uh, Hendrick Roberts uh, from Alexandria, Virginia. Is there a uh, general list of uh, drone manufacturers? 
Uh, I'm sure that there is one out there. There's there are many lists of kind of there's like a pretty good chart of the whole drone marketplace that I'm sure would have a, a bunch of the manufacturers in there as well. If you send me an email, I'm happy to try to dig that out for you. Thanks. We have a, a, a few questions uh, by email relating to the countermeasures. Um, uh, Lisa, can you just walk through what, what those are and, and how safe they are? Sure. So there are a lot of different technologies that are out there. You know, companies, um, like I said, companies are worried about drones as much as they're excited about drones, right? And so um, there are a bunch of, as just as quickly as the UAV industry is, is growing, there's also the counter UAV industry is also prospering um, because uh, of all of the interest in being able to stop rogue drones. So there's various ways it, of doing this. Um, there are drones out there that can catch other drones with a net or in other ways. Um, there are ways to jam signals. There are ways to take over, actually, like the computer of a drone, of, you know, essentially like take over uh, the uh, operation of a drone. Um, there are various things that you can do in terms of kind of geofencing your property. But the key is what's legal. And right now, um, it's not entirely clear. So uh, it's clear that you can't jam the signal, simply because if you jam the signal for to, in order to get rid of the drone, you're also jamming the signal for other things. That's simply illegal. Um, it could be a violation of computer fraud statutes if you, um, if you actually take over someone else's drone. Um, if you shoot it out of the sky, you could be under you know, FAA regulations impairing an aircraft. Um, you could be recklessly endangering the public. So there's a lot of different policy issues around this counter UAV issue. Um, that said, there's a ton of technologies that are popping up. There's a lot of interest from, of course, prisons and other public agencies as well as critical infrastructure facilities as well as private property owners. Um, this actually brings up a really interesting question, which is how much of the airspace above my backyard do I own, right? So this is kind of the next generation big, um, I think, public uh, conversation that we'll have around these issues because Right now, for example, there's a court case going on in Kentucky. Um, you may have heard about the Kentucky drone shooter where a guy shot a drone out of the sky. The, out of the sky, his neighbor was flying a drone at 200 feet over his private property. And the guy whose pop property is is saying that, is, that was trespass. You were trespassing my property. I shot your drone out of the sky. But because you were trespassing on my property, and the guy who was flying the drone said that wasn't trespass because I was in the public airspace. So it can't be trespass if I'm in the public airspace. So this is a big open question. And there's not really anything that's completely on point. Um, uh, there's a Supreme Court case from 1946, which uh, was in the military aircraft context, where a military aircraft was flying very low over a family's backyard. This family owned chicken coops. And they had chickens in their backyard. And all every time that the military aircraft, this was in the World War II context, flew very low over their backyard, it would scare the chickens and kill the chickens. And um, they, uh, as a result, brought a takings case against the federal government, saying that essentially the federal government was taking their private property, which was their airspace. And they argued that, you know, I own my land, so therefore I own the sky above. And uh, the Supreme Court said, you know, in the era of manned aircraft, it simply doesn't work that you would own all the sky above your property. However, it is perfectly reasonable that you would own some of the uh, airspace above your private property, and that would be, in this, in this case, was 83 feet. So um, 
we essentially, you know, that's an unrelated kind of different scenario, but we do know that the Supreme Court has previously stated that you own 83 feet above your private property, but in other contexts, such as the law enforcement context, it's legal for um, a police helicopter, for example, to fly over your um, fly over your property and take photos at 400 feet, so you know it's kind of somewhere between 400 feet and 83 feet, but we don't know exactly where that line is. Um, so all of this is very, and, very and even in those two cases, just note the difference. The Supreme Court case, basically, the plaintiffs were successful in their case for basically a takings and thus were getting compensation. The remedy was not to go shoot it down. Right. Okay, so the remedies are also different. You may have a case, but the answer is probably not going to be to shoot it down. I would also just note on the counter UAV stuff, it's not just pri privacy driven or, you know, corporate proprietary uh, secrets and, and guarding your factory or your facilities. It's also being looked at in the context of aviation safety with respect to airports. So periodically you'll read the reports of an airline or on final approach to let's say San Francisco Houston reports that they think they saw a drone um, flying near the glide slope and obviously that would be another area which is not a privacy context but actually just a safety context whether or not there's some technology that would allow the FAA or the airport operator to basically try and contain this thing or bring it down safely so that we would not have um, any basic accidents on final approach or on takeoff from um, uh, an unmanned drone that has either lost its way or is intentionally for some crazy reason flying near uh, an airport operation. Thanks, Pat. Um, our next caller is uh, Brad Grotes from Chenier Energy. Brad? My uh, question was actually covered in the countermeasure question. Thank you, though. Oh, terrific. Okay, then um, uh, uh, Gregory Fleming from Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, yes, you didn't mention anything about airports and the distance from airports. Uh, I believe it's five miles is in the rule, but uh, exceptions for that because five miles could put a total community out of the capability to fly a drone. And so what is the final reading in terms of the mileage and how do you get exceptions for that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's actually, so five miles is the rule for hobbyists, and it was the rule under the 333 exemptions. Um, but it's actually under, Part 107 doesn't say five miles. It actually says it goes based on airspace. And so it depends kind of what type of airspace you're in. Frankly, it depends on how big the airport is. Um, if it's a non-towered airport, a lot of times within a few miles of the airport, it's no problem for you to fly. It's um, but if uh, it's a busy airport, it might be, you know, five miles. It just depends on kind of where you're at. And um, it depends on the actual classification of the airspace rather than any five-mile requirement. Um, there, there's a portal online where you can ask for a waiver to be able to fly in um, restricted or uh, airspace. And, um, and that's something that I believe has opened already. We've had a few clients that have already applied for those types of waivers. And so that's something that you'd want to look into. So unlike the Section 333 provision where they did have a prohibition uh, or a set off, as you alluded to, of certain miles, now in the Part 107 rule what they've done is they've used the 
uh, controlled airspace restrictions and said you can't operate in controlled airspace. That would be class B, C, D, or E airspace without ATC authorization, which is supposed to be given in writing and requested in writing. This is not fly your drone up to the border of class B airspace and call the tower as if you were a manned aircraft when you would call the tower or the TRACON or the regional air facility to ask permission to enter. The FAA and the rule has said they want you to ask for that permission before you even start up operation and ask for it in writing. In addition, there is a general provision in Part 107, the new rule, that says you, UAS operations can't interfere with aircraft operations or traffic patterns at any airport, heliport, or seaplane base. So the, you don't have this sort of numerical set off. It's now set up under the new rule in terms of restricted airspace uh, prohibitions, absent permission, and just a general UAS can't interfere with airport operations or traffic patterns at airports. Thanks. Um, we have a, a couple of uh, related questions uh, about uh, going back to the privacy uh, uh, versus uh, security uh, uh, tension that you talked about. When should we expect um, some of these uh, cases to uh, get to uh, higher courts uh, uh, so we'd, we'd have a little bit of uh, guidance? Well, I think it's a great question. I believe it's, a, it's one of the district courts in Kentucky, which is currently considering that case, so that's ongoing. Um, there's another case, well, it actually is not, it's in the subpoena stage, so it's a, just a, an investigation up in Connecticut that was in a different context, but it's also about kind of FAA authorities. Um, that was, everyone may have seen the, on YouTube, the video of the guy who was shooting a gun off of a drone um, and had a flamethrower on a drone. He's being investigated um, by the FAA, and they're saying that they're making the case that actually the FAA doesn't have the authority because he was on his own private, in his in his private property and in his own private airspace. Um, the FAA, of course, would say that they have the authority to regulate from the blade of grass to the sky. So just to also make that um, throw that out there, it just makes it all the more complicated. So uh, all of this is very much in process, and in the meantime, we're, this is where we're seeing a lot of state activity. For example, California recently passed, um, but the governor vetoed a, a proposed law that would have limited, or that would have made, basically imposed strict liability on any drone pilot that flew above someone's private property under 350 feet above ground level. That would essentially kill the whole drone industry in the state of California. So the governor has vetoed that, but it remains under consideration and there remain, um, hot, it remains a hot topic in California. So this is something where we're, in the absence of any kind of, um, uh, any kind of guidance on this, we're seeing some states and localities try to have their say. Um, I would also just mention that, that, that NASA is, under, is leading an unmanned traffic management effort which is designed to essentially design some highways in the sky because at the end of the day this is it is a question right like we want to enable com broad commercial drone use um, that's in all of our best interests but how do we do that in, in a way that um, you know drones are flying above people next to structures under other types of aircraft how what does it all actually look like and how does this work in terms of communication between vehicles communication of drone between drones and other drones and um, 
this is a big part of designing these highways in the sky also will involve considering these airspace property issues and that NASA is leading this unmanned traffic management effort on behalf of um, with 150 industry partners and actively um, working on these types of issues. Uh, there was also recently established a drone advisory committee that the FAA has established um, with a bunch of industry folks as well as city folks as well as um, other advocates and as well as manned aviation professionals uh, to talk about many of these issues as well. My understanding is one of the working groups on this committee will, will be focused on some of these um, kind of privacy and other airspace type issues. Terrific. Uh, thank you very much Lisa Elman and Pat Rizzi from Hogan Levels. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, please join us next Tuesday for a conference call on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and open enrollment. Uh, we'll be doing the briefing with Cecilia Munoz, Assistant to the President and Director of the Domestic Policy Council at the White House. Uh, also, please check your email for a post-event survey where you can let us know what you thought of today's call. We'll also include resources where you can learn more about federal regulation of unmanned aircraft. Uh, thank you all very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you uh, again soon. Have a great day. You are currently the only person in this conference. You are currently the only person in this conference.